Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from across Ukraine discuss the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and we interview Karolina Hurd from the Institute for the Study of War on the Kremlin's occupation playbook in Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 16th of February, one year and 356 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is Carolina Hurd. Russia Deputy Team Lead, an analyst, and Evan Hansen's Fellow at the Institute for the Study of War. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David. Hi, everybody. Welcome, Carolina. And the big news that's broken just about an hour ago is the reported death of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. It's looking like that has happened, but there's not yet been official confirmation. But it, uh, there's widespread reports and it's taken that uh, Alexei Navalny has died in prison. We're going to speak much more about that a little bit later, so I'll just move on with the daily updates. Let's go to Avdivka in the east of Ukraine. John Kirby, the US National Security Council spokesperson, said Avdivka is at risk of falling into Russian control. In very large part, this is happening because Ukrainian forces on the ground are running out of artillery ammunition. We know there are fierce battles still raging in the city. Russia has massively stepped up its attacks Ukraine has prepared new positions around the industrial hub that comes from the Ukrainian armed forces, but there is a very, very heavy pressure against them continuing. Oksandr Tanavsky, Ukrainian general in the east, said our troops are using all available forces and means to restrain the enemy. President Zelensky said Kyiv will do everything to save lives in the city, now surrounded on three sides by Russian forces. Ukraine's army posted on social media, The Ukrainian defenders continue to hold back the enemy who keeps trying to encircle Avdivka. The Ukrainian soldiers are standing their ground. The scheduled reinforcement of units is underway. General Alexander Tarnavsky, I've just mentioned, he said, new positions have been prepared and powerful fortifications continue to be prepared, taking into account all possible scenarios. He said the situation in Avdivka was difficult but controlled. 
and said commanders have been tasked to stabilise the situation. Now, over the last day, the coke and chemical plant in the city has been hit by reported white phosphorus shells. Whatever's hit it has released huge clouds of big, thick, black, billowing toxic gas. Ukrainian military officials said that has floated over and poisoned a number of Ukrainian soldiers. Footage of that fire on social media, you'll see it's on our website as well. Thick smoke coming from a number of hits on the power plant. Denis Sokur, who's a Ukrainian battalion commander in Avdivka, he posted on Telegram the following. He said, this poisonous substance has extremely serious consequences for the health and even the lives of our soldiers. Cases of personnel poisoning are constantly increasing. So we think these phosphorus charges or whatever they were used to ignite the fuel tanks in the coke and chemical plant. The Ukraine's third brigade said that it's released a poisonous smog into the air. Institute for the Study of War, the US think tank, we're going to hear more of in a moment. They've reported geolocated footage from yesterday showing Russian advances to the north and the south of the city. They say Ukrainian forces have yet to fully withdraw and continue to prevent Russian forces from making gains that are more significant than the current incremental Russian advances. The Russian offensive effort to capture Avdivka underscores the Russian military's inability to conduct a successful operational envelopment or encirclement in Ukraine. The potential Russian capture of Avdivka would not be operationally significant and would likely only offer the Kremlin immediate informational and political victories. That, I think, is the point there, the political victory with the elections coming up. Just pause briefly and focus on that phrase, not operationally significant, because I know a lot of people are going to say, well, what does that mean? You never want to lose ground as a fighting force, but we have to bear in mind the relative cost, in this case for Russia, of taking ground in Avdivka. Holding ground obviously has a value, but if it doesn't lead to other things, such as acting as a springboard for further offensives or be holding vital railroad junction, for example, a logistic hub, is the juice worth the squeeze? And maybe there was a better, perhaps less costly way of achieving your aim. Think about Bakhmut. Remember Bakhmut was, te- was taken last May. A lot of the arguments that are being used now over Avdivka were used over, over Bakhmut. Russia lost thousands of soldiers and hundreds of tanks and other armoured vehicles taking uh, Bakhmut. It broke Wagner with all the ramifications that we remember, Prigozhin. And you've got to ask, well, what has that achieved? Russia has not used Bakhmut as a springboard to leap forward further into the Donbass. It's not become a critical hub that has necessitated a massive effort from Ukraine to retake it. So, yes, Avdivka is not operationally significant, And those thousands of Russian men are dying just to give Putin something to hold up as a victory. He'll claim a major victory in his election campaign. But that is not how wars are won. Now, separately, Ukraine's general staff says 95 combat engagements took place along the entire front line yesterday and more than 100 Russian airstrikes. In the morning update, the general staff said the enemy launched a total of 34 missile and 85 airstrikes. 114 MLRS, that's multiple launch rocket system, attacks at the position of Ukrainian troops and various settlements. Unfortunately, the Russian terrorist attacks have killed and wounded civilians, they said. In response, the general staff said Kyiv's forces had hit 12 concentrations of Russian troops with airstrikes, but gave no details about the size or location of those strikes. Just on 
losses. It is reported that Russian losses of Ukraine have passed 400,000 for the first time. This is coming out of Ukrainian military again. They said the total combat losses for Russian forces since the start of the full-scale invasion has reached 400,300, including over 1,200 killed in the past day alone. They say, this is Ukraine's general staff, they say Russia has also lost 6,465 tanks, I mean, colossal number, 325 helicopters, 25 ships and boats, and over 12,000 other armoured vehicles. That was in the Daily Report today. That's us up to date, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Dunley. Thanks, David. It's a sad day for many with the life of the foremost symbol of Russian opposition snuffed out. So what do we know about the death of Alexei Navalny, aged just 47? Not a lot at this stage that hasn't come from the state prison service of the region in the Arctic Circle where he'd been serving his sentence. Hardly the most reliable source. They claim in a statement that he fell sick during a walk, fainted and died quickly after that, that medical staff had been called but were unable to resuscitate him and that the reason of death was being established. The reason of death, what a phrase. Because we know the reason for speaking out against Putin and corruption and for campaigning for democracy in Russia. Lest we forget, Putin has tried to kill Navalny at least three times. Now he's finally succeeded, directly or indirectly. Navalny's team has not confirmed his death, but for many it did seem inevitable, as he's been kept in near constant isolation for years after a poisoning that almost killed him, and his family complained that, as such, his life was in danger. He'd been sentenced to 19 years under a special regime. In a video from the prison in January, he appeared gaunt with his head shaved. As one commentator has written this morning, we should not use the passive, Navalny has died, he was murdered by the Russian state. To serve as a reminder, Navalny was a former nationalist politician who helped foment the 2011-12 protests in Russia by campaigning against election fraud and government corruption, investigating Putin's inner circle and sharing the findings in very slick videos that garnered hundreds of millions of views. The high watermark in his political career came in 2013 when he won 27% of the vote in a Moscow mayoral contest that few believed was free or fair. He remained a thorn in the side of the Kremlin for years, identifying a palace built on the Black Sea for Putin's personal use, mansions and yachts used by the ex-president Dmitry Medvedev, and a sex worker who linked a top foreign policy official with a well-known oligarch. In 2020, Navalny, as I say, fell into a coma after a suspected poisoning using Novichok by Russia's FSB security service and was evacuated to Germany for treatment. He recovered and returned, incredibly, to Russia in January 2021, where he was arrested on a parole violation charge and sentenced to his first of several jail terms that would total more than 30 years behind bars. He's not a figure without controversy. For some, his nationalist views put him at odds with his liberal Western image. Before the full-scale invasion, he suggested that Crimea and Ukraine was Russian. But since the invasion, his view shifted and he released numerous statements on the evils of the invasion and how essential it was for Putin to be stopped. 
If he has been murdered now, and I know Dom has some thoughts on this in terms of the implications of the timing, then it could be explained by the context of the presidential election in Russia and these very unhelpful statements Navalny would release regularly through his lawyers. One of the reasons we assume he was moved recently to this specific colony and regularly denied access to speak to his team. It's really important, I think, to note the vital symbolic role that Navalny played. For many, for right or wrong, he was the symbol of opposition in Russia. Many are saying today that the only popular opposition leader in Russia is dead and therefore civil society has been extinguished. As another wrote, a reminder of what Russia has become, as if we need any reminders. Some people evidently do. Tyranny feeds on the blood of its victims. It thus grows stronger and more arrogant and it respects nothing but force. Who genuinely believes now you can negotiate in good faith with such a regime? It should be becoming increasingly obvious that only inflicting a serious defeat in Ukraine against Russian forces can profoundly change Russia in the way many desire. Poignantly, footage was released yesterday of Navalny during a court hearing where he seems to be laughing at something his captors said, despite everything. It is that spirit of defiance which many will look for in the life of Alexei Navalny and remember. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom, I know you've also got some reflections and thoughts. Yeah, I've just been, um, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of hours, chatting to you guys and other, other people around, just wondering why now. It almost doesn't matter the manner of his death. If he was murdered or allowed to die, he has been killed by the system. But why now? And I think the upcoming election in Russia has got to be front and centre here. I mean, Putin hates unhelpful chatter, even though the election result is not in any doubt. But he just hates any figure who says anything or around whom ideas and chatter can congregate. That's one of the reasons why Navalny was moved and denied access. But on top of the elections, you've got Donald Trump's recent comments about NATO and inviting inviting Russia to do whatever the hell they like, et cetera, et cetera. You've got the behaviour of Republicans in Congress over the Ukraine bill. It's a fevered time right now. Of note, today, right now, President Zelensky is in Munich at the Munich Security Conference. He's already signed this morning a bilateral security pact with Germany for about $1.2 billion, 1.1 billion euro, howitzers, air defence systems, missiles, et cetera, et cetera. It's likely he's going to sign a similar pact with France later on today or over the weekend so this could be the timing of this could be a snub for that a message from Putin saying i don't care have as many security pacts as you like it's of no consequence but it could be a mistake it could be if it's a mistake it might be because or rather you know president zelensky has got the world's attention now in, in terms of the security through the security lens he's at munich he's with world leaders and he's already made a speech about this. He's already made some comments. They're hitting the wires as we speak. So this is an opportunity to draw attention to what Putin is doing in Russia, what he's doing in Ukraine, and also the crazy situation in the, in the US at the moment. If, however, it is a snub, if Putin has done this deliberately now, or the system has allowed this to happen deliberately now, we've got to think about what it says. And if Putin now feels as if he can do whatever he likes, he might feel he's winning, he might feel that the tide is on his side, he can do 
what he likes. He doesn't care what people think about him. We've got to think about the other people who are imprisoned at the moment, imprisoned political activist and British citizen, Vladimir Karamirza, for example. His wife, Yevgenia, came on the pod in on December last year, December the 6th last year. We had Yevgenia on. We've also got to think about uh, Svetlana Sikhanouskaya, who's the Belarus opposition leader and, in reality, very likely the winner of the 2020 presidential election for Lukashenko, um, stole it. Now, she stood as a candidate in that election because her husband, who had been the presidential candidate, was barred from entering the election and locked up. He and many other political opponents of Lukashenko, who is obviously a close buddy of Putin, are still locked up. So there are many, many other people, opposition figures inside and outside Russia who are locked up. And we've got to be very, very concerned for them now. I've got to look very strongly to national leaders, Britain here in the case of case of Vladimir Karamurza, but we've got to look at what they say in the action of the Foreign Office. It is worth noting that back in 2021, there was a White House press conference after President Biden met Putin, and Biden was asked, what did you say would happen if opposition leader Alexei Navalny dies? President Biden said, I made it clear to him, Putin, that I believe the consequences of that would be devastating for Russia. So now the question's got to be, well, what does devastating mean? What is the US reaction going to be to this? Is this a red line? We've heard of red lines before. President Obama got into all sorts of trouble over his red line in Syria in 2012 about the use of chemical weapons. So this is an extremely dangerous moment, I think. We look for leadership and we look for strong leadership from the US in particular. We had a live podcast event last night at the US Embassy here in London, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, was one of the panel guests, spoke brilliantly. He said he thinks the next two weeks are some of the the most important periods in recent history. And he said we will look back uh, in future as an inflection point. This moment right now, these two weeks, as a moment of choice, whether or not we say this is the time to stand up to Putin and fight for our values or we roll over. Now, he was saying that last night. Obviously, no one had any idea. No one here had any idea about what was about to happen to Alexei Navalny. But I think his words are absolutely brought in sharp focus today. This is an inflection point. This is a very, very dangerous moment. This is the moment the world chooses. And the words and actions coming out of the White House in particular, but European leaders also, and zone in on the Munich Security Conference this weekend, these words will really matter and the actions that, that come from them. And we look now, we really need US leadership now, get that bill unblocked in Congress. I don't care if they've broken up for the end of February, whatever, get it done, show some leadership. We need the EU and NATO and other non-aligned countries to stand up and make a choice. And I think that moment has been brought, as Bill Taylor, Ambassador Bill Taylor said, the next two weeks, well, I think we're talking about the next couple of days, to be perfectly honest. We need some strong leadership right now. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis, as you said, there are more diplomatic and political updates. Can you take us through them? Well, as Dom said, it was an honour to attend the US Embassy here in London last night. And we spoke privately with the current ambassador to London before that live event. We discussed the current state of the war and inevitably the fate of that aid bill Dom was just discussing was a key theme. We'll be releasing the video of that conversation very shortly and we'll put a link in the description. I really, really recommend listeners check it out. The latest on the bill 
does remain frustrating. However, Biden has issued a stinging rebuke of the US House of Representatives for its decision to go on recess without voting on that bill to provide aid to Ukraine. The Republican majority House has scrapped votes scheduled for Friday and gone on recess until the end of February without voting on the bill. Failure to support Ukraine at this critical moment will never be forgotten, Biden wrote on Twitter. Speaker Johnson is cutting and running, sending the House on an early undeserved vacation as he continues to strengthen Russia's murderous war effort. Andrew Bates, the White House spokesperson, wrote in a memo obtained by The Hill. So we will now be waiting on that bill until at least the end of the month unless something drastic changes. This comes amid Zelensky's tour of Europe. Zelensky has just arrived in Berlin, ahead of talks with Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor. The pair are due to sign that bilateral security pact covering Ukraine's long-term security commitments and support. Then Zelensky will travel to Paris later today, where he's expected to sign a similar bilateral agreement with France's President Macron. As Zelensky put it, I am starting two important days, meetings with partners in Germany and France, new agreements and the Munich Security Conference, a new security architecture for Ukraine, as well as new opportunities. We are making every effort to end the war as soon as possible on fair Ukrainian terms and ensure a lasting peace. We'll need to see the agreements when they are signed, but we expect them to follow the model of the British agreement with Ukraine agreed a few weeks back, namely providing security support for the long term, though, just for the avoidance of doubt, not promising to go to war in the case of another future invasion. And that it was another subject we discussed quite extensively, what exactly security guarantees would do the job in the long term. There is increased concern about Moldova as well today, one of those so-called grey zones in Europe which are not in NATO and which Russia clearly sees belong within its sphere of influence. As our friends at the Institute for the Study of War are saying today, and it's great to have Carolina calling in from Washington again, the Kremlin is using very similar rhetoric towards Moldova as it did before its invasion of Ukraine. They say Moscow's methods are likely designed to set conditions to justify possible future Russian escalation against Moldova. Addressing the Transnistria conflict, yesterday Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister for Russia, made a series of allegations that mirror those directed at Ukraine ahead of the annexation of Crimea and the full-scale invasion. Those included falsely claiming that the US and EU control the Moldovan government. He also claimed that there are about 200,000 Russian citizens there and that Russia is concerned about their fate and will not allow them to become victims of another Western adventure. The Kremlin has used the idea of protecting its compatriots abroad to justify the Russian occupation of Transnistria since 1992, as well as the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It has huge echoes, of course, for many listeners with the Sudetenland in the 1930s and the way in which the Germans spoke about there. Moldova's geography is such that Russia could only invade it by sea or through Ukraine. But there are other ways, of course, of sowing unrest, namely in the political sphere, something we've extensively reported on last year in the Moldovan context, with its leaders saying that Russia tried to launch a coup there. 
This was one of the topics, again, that we covered at the US Embassy last night, namely how the West can proactively stop these countries from Russian escalation. Another topic we discussed, unsurprisingly, was America's commitment to NATO, with Britain's Defence Secretary Grant Shapps saying that Trump's concerns over defence spending have now been addressed because countries are stepping up and doing the right thing now. As we reported yesterday, 18 of NATO's 31 member states announced plans to hit the target following Trump's remarks. Nevertheless, I don't believe this is great strategic genius on the former president's part. It is an unintended consequence, albeit, in my view, a welcome one. It's vital we remember, though, vital we remember, that we are still only 2% of GDP spending, even at that spend. And there are many now who think that is too little, given the present context. So it may well be wishful thinking from Mr. Shapps, I'm afraid. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for your reporting and thoughts there. Carolina, it's really wonderful to have you back. It's really great to hear from you. Thank you so much for calling in from Washington today. Let's talk about your new report. There's so many questions to ask. The title is The Kremlin's Occupation Playbook, Coerced Russification and Ethnic Cleansing in Occupied Ukraine. Where to start? Can we start with that phrase, coerced Russification? What does that mean and what are you seeing? Hello, good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, And thank you for highlighting my recent report. In terms of the concept of coerced Russification, this is a term that I came up with to talk about all of the very almost small scale bureaucratic manipulations that are happening in occupied territories of Ukraine that are meant to fundamentally eradicate Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian access to language, culture, and social connections and that that sort of thing, and replace them with Russian identity. And this can happen on the smallest scale level, right? From the replacement of Ukrainian history curricula in occupied schools with Russian history curricula, where children learn about the Kremlin line on the invasion of Crimea. Also, the access to Ukrainian language 
in schools in occupied Zaporizhia Oblast, for example, parents are given this false semblance of choice that their children may take Ukrainian if they want to, but they can only take Ukrainian lessons for a maximum of three hours a week. And this is very much this coerced Russification, slowly trying to turn the dial on basically erasing Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian language through these very small tactical level manipulations. This also happens through the basically issuance of social services, such as maternity capital payments, for example. Maternity capital payments are only issued now to those with, to parents with Russian passports, which basically means that their child will be a natural Russian citizen. So all of these social, linguistic, economic, legal, bureaucratic, cultural, social, educational methods that Russia is employing to very, very deliberately eradicate Ukrainian identity in occupied territories, replace it with Russian identity, and very much undermine Ukraine's claim to its own land and its own people. You call it the occupation playbook. Where did Russia learn this? And how has it changed? Has it changed at all? Are they repeating something by the book, if you will? Or is it a bit more targeted in the occupied territories? So the reason I called this a playbook is because, as you know, this is not the first time Russia has done this. It's not the first time Russia has done this in Ukraine, but it's also not the first time Russia has experimented with these strategies. I didn't delve into it quite as much in my report, but there are also obvious parallels to some Soviet strategies of moving populations around within its claimed borders, as well as Russian intervention in Georgia in 2008, and then, of course, manipulations in Transnistria in the 1990s. And that all that being said, the 2022 in full-scale invasion was not the first time Russia occupied Ukraine. This, of course, was 2014 with the illegal invasion and annexation of Crimea and then parts of the Donbass, the DNR and LNR. And this is where the Kremlin first experimented with this playbook, this occupation playbook. And Crimea, I think, is the clearest example of this. A lot of the ways that Russia was able to basically convince the West that Crimea is somehow inherently different than the rest of Ukraine, even though under international law, Crimea is as much Ukraine as, for example, Zaporizhia Oblast is part of Ukraine. But that occupation playbook was very much put into use in Crimea and basically did all of the things that we're seeing now. So basically limit to completely cancel out access to Ukrainian language classes, effectively replace large portions of the population with Russian nationals through repopulation efforts, all sorts of social and legal manipulations that were intended to cast the occupation of Crimea somehow legitimate and legal, and basically convince Ukraine's partners that Crimea is somehow intrinsically different than the rest of Ukrainian land. And now we're seeing that same playbook, that same strategy applied in occupied Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk oblasts at an expedited scale. They're doing these things a lot quicker and a lot more aggressively and passing all sorts of federal level laws that really are meant to absorb these occupied areas of Ukraine into Russia much quicker, both de jure and de facto based off of the lessons learned in Crimea and Donbass in 2014. Can we talk a little bit more about 
the phrase ethnic cleansing. We've talked about Russification a bit. It'd be good to get into that later again, I think. But ethnic cleansing, what are you saying? How would you explain it to our listeners? Yes. So I think first and foremost, it's important to understand that ethnic cleansing has not yet been well-defined by international law in the same way that the terms, for example, of genocide or war crimes have been. But it's very much situated within the international law emanating from the crimes committed on the territory of the former Yugoslavia. So that's a framework that I'm using to understand what we believe amounts to an ethnic cleansing campaign in Ukraine. We see deliberate effort on the part of Russia to depopulate areas of Ukraine of Ukrainians and then repopulate those areas with Russians. So, of course, there's this broad deportation campaign in place that targets both adults and children. By Kremlin statistics, Russia has, quote-unquote, accepted or deported close to 5 million Ukrainians, including 700,000 children. So that's the Russian effort to remove, physically remove that Ukrainian population from Ukraine and cut off Ukraine's access to its own people. And of course, this has devastating multi-generational impacts when children are a very clear target of this deportation campaign. So that takes Ukrainians out of Ukraine and then replaces them with Russians. And this is very much this textbook application of an ethnic cleansing policy. We're seeing reports all throughout occupied Ukraine, especially in larger cities such as Mariupol and Berdyansk, of Russian officials basically encouraging Russian resettlement in these occupied cities. So the numbers are a little unclear, but large populations taking up jobs in Mariupol and basically replacing the Ukrainian population with the Russian population. And all of these things very much fit into this larger strategy of an ethnic cleansing to make Ukraine appear less Ukrainian, undermine Kiev's claims, very legitimate claims to its own people, and make it look like an intrinsic part of Russia. And of course, any acts that amount to ethnic cleansing per this UN definition from the former Yugoslavia notably can also constitute violations of international law and the genocide convention. So there's a lot of international frameworks that we can use to understand what's going on right now. Karolina, you mentioned that many Ukrainians are, of course, being resettled, moved out, deported. Do we know anything about where they are going? This is where it gets a little bit fuzzier. And I think that is absolutely by design, especially for adults. We largely lose, for the most part, visibility in the open source into what happens to Ukrainian adults when they are deported into Russia. But there's absolutely a component of this where Russia is trying to maintain its own demographics and build out its economic potential. So using that as a framework for understanding that deported Ukrainians are probably used and coerced to participate in the Russian economy, Russian labor force, that sort of thing. It's a little more clear with children because Russians are engaged in this really weird game when they're trying to portray their deportation of children as humanitarian. So they provide a lot of information about it, which then is used to say, 
to basically understand that they're conducting this awful deportation campaign targeting Ukrainian children. But when children are taken to Russia, they're either placed in children's camps that can be as far from Ukraine as uh, Vladivostok, which is actually closer to the U.S., to Alaska than it is to Ukraine. And these children's camps are essentially intended to sequester Ukrainian children and russify them through different educational programs, militarization, these military patriotic programs that are very much meant to cut Ukrainian children off from their Ukrainian identities, makes it very difficult for their families to repatriate them, and just instills a very anti-Ukrainian, pro-Russian mindset in these children. And of course, the adoption angle is very interesting because we know that Ukrainian children are adopted into Russian families or placed into foster care. Even high-level officials, such as Maria Lvova-Bielova, the Russian Commissioner on Children's Rights, and a prominent Russian political party leader, Sergei Mironov, have adopted children from Ukraine. And the sort of bureaucratic processes that underpin adoption make it even more difficult to identify and repatriate these children because their birth certificates are changed, their names are written in Russian as opposed to Ukrainian, and they're very much cut off from any access to Ukraine. So all of that to say what happens to deported adults is a little more difficult to figure out. But in terms of deported children, you see that very, very clear effort to basically eradicate their connection to Ukraine and fully Russian. And of course, once again, this has multi-generational impacts, and this very much is robbing Ukraine of its multi-generational potential. Can I ask, when you talk about the occupation playbook, are there any differences you see in between the different occupied regions? Is anything done differently in Zaporizhia compared to uh, Luhansk or Donetsk, um, or, or, or is it fairly blanket and fairly uniform? I would say at this point, it's fairly uniform with the caveat that each of the four occupation officials of the four newly occupied oblasts, so the Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk occupation heads, they each have their own focuses and their own strategies in terms of how they're providing for the occupation of these territories. They're all Kremlin-controlled, so they get their instructions from the Kremlin. But on a smaller, more granular level, they all focus on slightly different things. I think an interesting example is that, for example, the Herson occupation head, uh, Saldo, he's very focused on claiming that children from Herson Oblast are going to rest in relaxation camps in Crimea or in Russia. So he's very much focused on this social angle, whereas it looks like the Zaporizhia Oblast head is very focused on the economic angle, basically in integrating Zaporizhia into Russia in a, on an economic and infrastructure level. The heads of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, occupation administrations, uh, Pushilin and Pasichnik, they've both been at this for a lot longer. So their strategies are eight plus years in the making now. So it, it differs just in the way that the individual occupation administration is conducting the occupation. But the de jure laws that are surrounding this are definitely uniform amongst all four oblasts. Bringing this all together then, Carolina, is it working, do you think? So I think at this point, it is it is working in that it's doing what it's supposed to do, right? At this point, Russia occupies 
5 million Ukrainians by Ukrainian estimates and has deported nearly 5 million as per Russian estimates, that is something that is difficult to reverse. It will become substantially more difficult over time, right? As the war wears on, as the U.S. continues to dawdle in providing support for Ukraine to liberate its occupied territories, this reintegration project becomes a lot more difficult. And that's exactly the design of the playbook, right? That is what Russia did in Crimea in 2014. And I think in large part why the West has this almost neuralgia about talking about Crimea as this, in the same way as it talks about all of the rest of Ukraine. So I think we're seeing the beginnings of this playbook being successfully used once again since 2022. That doesn't mean this is a foregone conclusion. Ukraine is still relatively well positioned at this time to reintegrate its territories and reintegrate its people, but it needs Western support to be able to do that militarily. And it will need Western support to reintegrate and basically dismantle occupation regimes, etc., once it regains access to its occupied territories. So long story short, I think we're starting to see the beginnings of this occupation playbook work. It is in the West's hands to provide Ukraine with the tools to reverse it. And this will become harder and harder and harder with each passing month, year, etc., Thank you so much, Carolina. Francis, I know you've got a couple of questions. Thank you. I, I mean, Carolina, it's always fascinating hearing your perspective on this. And I think you've very neatly summarised why this should have been one of the incentives for the war to be ended as soon as possible, because the longer that this behaviour is allowed to continue, then the more irreversible it potentially becomes. But I wanted to specifically ask you, first of all, about the statistics around children. You cited 700,000 children being evacuated, the term used by the Russians. Now, we know that the Ukrainian government has confirmed 19,000 children kidnapped and taken away from their parents, obviously slightly potentially different. But that number hasn't gone up for months and months. We've been citing that figure for a very long time now. So I think we can assume that the real figure is much, much higher than that. Just wonder if you can break down a little bit more, if possible, what that 700,000 is and the different categories within that, because there's a huge gulf, of course, between 19,000 and 700,000. Absolutely. And I think that's really important to remember because the Ukrainian government can only confirm the identities of children who they can track down birth certificates or talk to relatives or basically that they can legally confirm the identities of children. So they can only confirm at nearly 20,000. So the number that you gave, between 19 and 20,000. But Ukrainian officials are very clear that they cannot confirm the identities of every child that's been deported because, especially in occupied areas, the Ukrainian government doesn't necessarily have visibility or access to information about who's being removed from the territories that Russia controls right now, right? So that can likely explain a large part of that gap because Ukraine just doesn't have visibility. They can't account for the hundreds of children that by Russia's own admission are going to quote-unquote rest and relaxation camps in Russia on a weekly basis. It's very, very difficult by design for Kiev to confirm the identities of this cho these children. So, of course, we can't confirm the exact number, but I absolutely believe that it's going to be closer to that 700,000 than it is to the 19,000. 
And with that being said, that's partially because there are so many different ways that Russia is facilitating the deportation of children. So we have these social cultural programs, which is where children are deported to Russia to participate in, for example, history courses or different cultural offerings, where they're basically exposed to Russian history and discouraged from affiliating with their Ukrainian identity by basically being told that Ukraine is evil, Ukrainians are Nazis, that sort of thing. So that's one avenue. The second avenue is these educational avenues, which heavily involve military patriotic programming. So basically children that are removed to Russia and deported to Russia, I should be using the verb deported, I'm sorry, deported to Russia to basically participate in these like youth cadet training courses. Um, Chechen head Ramzan Kadyrov and then the Russian investigative committee have been very explicitly linked to this effort. And it's very much meant to, in, in the most nefarious way possible, militarize Ukrainian children when they're deported to Russia so that they will eventually become a mobile, mobilizable resource for the Russian military. We also have several youth engagement programs that are operating in Russia where typically older Ukrainian children, so teenagers, adolescents, etc., are brought to Russia to participate in like civil society programs. There's also, of course, the vacation schemes and the children's camps, which have been fairly well reported on. And then the medical and psychological rehabilitation programs. So basically the deportation of children to Russia under the guise of getting medical or psychological care. And all of these different programs have different command lines, if that makes sense. So it becomes very difficult to track down and identify children because there are so many different schemes under which the Russian government is deporting these children. And I think all of these multifaceted ways, and this is not even to speak of the adoption angle, right? There's the adoption with adoption of Ukrainian children into Russian families, which makes it even more difficult to track these children down. And the fact that a portion of Ukrainian children are deported to Belarus. So reporting, repatriating Ukrainian children through Belarus is also very difficult. So all of these different ways that Russia is deporting Ukrainian children is by design intended to make it very difficult for Ukraine to repatriate its children and absolutely accounts for this gulf between the verifiable statistic and the Russian self-admitted statistic. Thank you. Whenever we talk about this, I just feel like we're straight back in the Second World War. I mean, it just is so egregious and the numbers so huge and the mystery surrounding what is going on so vast. Just one more question for me, Carolina, if I may. When we spoke about these themes some months ago on the podcast, it was, I I think I said to you then, you know, this is obviously, it should be a priority it should be being talked about a lot more. And I remember you making the point that it would become irreversible the longer that it's going on. I get the sense from what you've said today that things have not improved. If anything, they've got worse. What would your messaging be to those listening who want to get the word out and want to encourage more people to be aware of this issue because it just seems there is a huge gulf in understanding about what is taking place in Ukraine around children and kidnapped people. Absolutely. And I think I probably said something similar to you when we spoke a few months ago, but for me the most important thing is 
at this point in the West, there's this very, I think, misplaced concept of quote unquote Ukraine fatigue. And the thing is, we don't get to be fatigued. We're not fighting this war and we're not the ones under occupation. And I think it's a very nefarious outcome of this Ukraine fatigue that it becomes a lot easier to conceptualize and talk about the war in desensitized terms of military units moving around and like red lines on maps. And I think it is especially critical now in the way that the policy and aid debate has become very detached and desensitized to remember that when we're talking about aid for Ukraine, it's of course aid for Ukraine to liberate square meters of territory. But first and foremost, it's aid for Ukraine to liberate its people, liberate its lands, and reverse this occupation playbook, reintegrate all of the people that have been living under occupation. And this becomes heartbreakingly more difficult with every passing day, months, years down the road. And I think the most salient example I came across in my research for this piece is is the Polish example, right? The Nazi deportation of Polish children from Poland, that now there are Polish now adults in their 80s and 90s living in Germany who don't speak a word of Polish, who don't know who their Polish families are and that sort of thing. We've seen this before, and now we are seeing this again in real time. So when we're talking about the war and the military requirements, I think it's really important to understand the deeply, deeply human element that is underpinning all of this. And I think that bringing that back into these really dry discussions about exchanging land, basically what land Ukraine wants to get back. It's not land, it's people. Like Ukraine needs to be able to take and reintegrate all of its people. So I think that's the closing note I would leave everyone on is that war is a deeply human endeavor and we cannot separate the human element from the military and political considerations here. Well, thank you so much, Carolina. We'll come back to you for a brief final thought at the end of the episode. But Dom and Francis, can I come to you first? Yeah, I just, uh, I've been tracking the comments that have been breaking in the last few minutes as we've been on air and seeing what the reaction is going to be. Of note, I think, interestingly, Ben Wallace, former Defence Secretary here in the UK, still a politician till the uh, till the next election but, and still very much a public figure, he has said, for every action, Putin must feel a reaction. For the murder of Navalny, NATO members must pledge to train 200,000 Ukrainian soldiers a year. I think we are currently training, the coalition at the moment is training about 20,000 a year. He says the NATO needs to double down on supplies, including Taurus from Germany, we need to tighten sanctions. He says we need to confiscate Russian assets and use that use those assets for Ukraine. He says US Congress must pass the aid package. And he finishes by saying if Putin thinks he can get away with this, he will continue. And for those who wonder, Russia can be defeated in Ukraine. So I think that's an interesting little marker. I think there should be more of that. Let's see what happens over the next few hours. I mean, this Russian army has been shown it can be beaten in Ukraine. The Ukrainians just need to be given the wherewithal to do that. And that starts with the politics externally and starts with the reaction to, to Navalny's, Navalny's death. So I look forward with interest to see how the world reacts to this. Thank you so much, Dom. Francis Danley. Thanks. I think that's a really interesting point from Ben Wallace. I remember us discussing probably a year and a half ago this idea that you actually lay down what the consequences of particular things are, such as war crimes, that this will have implications of certain weapons being sent, for instance. The fact that there is this gulf has led to Putin having 
ample opportunities to expand and escalate this war both domestically and internationally. But I wanted to end today just with a word of thanks to everyone who came to the US Embassy last night or who watched remotely. One lady came all the way from Vancouver. Thank you also to the Embassy staff and the wider Telegraph team here, especially Kate Chatlin and the video team, Jamie Johnson, our US growth editor, and Debbie Stevens in marketing for all of their efforts. It's never easy putting on one of these events and for things to go smoothly, but we're really pleased with how it all went. We look forward to hearing your thoughts on it when we publish it. By the time you're hearing this on the podcast, it should be out and we'll link it in the description, as I say. Despite all the gloom at the moment, one cannot help but be cheered and inspired at events such as that, as so many of you care deeply about Ukraine and the war. And we appreciate all of you, all of you who listen to us as part of that effort. Stay tuned as next week, the week of the two year anniversary, is going to be a big one for us. Thank you very much, Francis and Dom. And yes, just from me as well, thank you so much to everybody who came to see us yesterday. It was really, really nice meeting so many listeners. And thank you to our wonderful guests and all the Telegraph and the US teams. But Carolina, can I come to you for the final words for today? Absolutely. I think um, I'll, I'll piggyback off of what Francis and Dom have said, right? I think if we do not bond to Putin's various escalations and manipulations, right? Whether that's militarily, politically, and then in, in the context of this occupation. We're basically, as an international community, endorsing what he is doing. And I think that's incredibly important to remember, especially with how dark and heavy everything is feeling right now. But thank you, David, Francis, and Dom for having me today. It's always been a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carolina Hurd from the Institute for the Study of War. Thank you, Francis and Dom, for your thoughts today. And as Francis said, next week will be a very interesting and big week for the podcast. So do stay tuned for some interesting developments. But thank you so much, Carolina, for your time today. It's been really fascinating to hear your reports and congratulations and all the wonderful work you and your colleagues do at the Institute for the Study of War. We really do rely on you. So thank you, Carolina. Thank you all for listening and have a very good afternoon. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter. And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.